Thank you for listening to Knocking Doors Down, brought to you by KDD Media Company. You know, it's it's this is the trauma side of my story. My parents got divorced, mm-hmm. and I, I can't even look back now and say exactly how old I was. I was just going to ask how old you were. I think I was around 11 or 12 mm-hmm. when my parents got divorced. Um, there was, you know, a, a bit, the, the trauma to me was seeing my parents interact previous to the legal part of it. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, their their separation of, you know, love wasn't there anymore, and anger now became part of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Disagreements all the time, and... Yeah. You know, things things were happening. And, and as a kid, you know, at that age, you're witnessing this, you know, uh, times where my parents would fight and my dad would go, you know, punch a hole through our bathroom door. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, seeing that as a kid is pretty traumatic. This is Knocking Doors Down, a podcast about ending the stigma around addiction and mental health issues. Your host, Jason, here with background of alcoholism, some childhood trauma. My co-host over there, Uncle Mikey. What is going on, people? Eh, he's been busted a time or two. Yeah, what are you going to do? Struggles a little bit with some anxiety in other areas. But, uh, hey, we're all about talking with people that take all of these uh, matters and issues, openly talk about them to destigmatize it. And, uh, well, that's what Knocking Doors Down is all about. That's Pushing right. through. Our guest this week, a personal friend. And co-worker. Yeah, Jason Van Dusen, JVD as we call him. And uh, interesting enough, we get into it. Uh, I had no idea. that I've known the man for five years now and didn't know he struggled with any Same. substance abuse. Same. I've known him for years. I had no idea. Yeah, he's uh, an extraordinary person, not only um, him and his wife. Uh, maybe by the time you hear this, there might be two more Van Dusens in the world or That's close right. to it. That's right. Uh, his wife pregnant with twins. but uh, Kid number 47 for JBD. <laughs> yeah. Yes, they they do have a household full, uh, not only their own children, but they have fostered many a children. Right. And uh, he does, uh, Jason does a lot in the recovery area within his community, uh, things like Celebrate uh, Recovery and also going out to uh, foster care camps and things. So they're very active in their community. So a real example of uh, turning your life around from, you know, could not could have lived in a way that he'd be dead now, but doing something positive with yeah. it. And of course, we couldn't do any of this without 5150 LTM. All the gear and swag that you see Mikey and I wearing in social media posts on our YouTube channel. Well, we are geared up with 5150 LTM gear. And uh, you can get a discount by being a listener of Knocking Doors Down. How, Jason? Use the code KDD20. What is it? KDD20. Use the numerics 20KDD20. Get 20% off at checkout. Sick. The Knockin' Doors Down book shares all the history and inspiration behind the Carlos Vieira Foundation and how it all started. All proceeds from the book benefit the Carlos Vieira Foundation's Race to Be Drug Free campaign. So, what's that all about? Through the Race to Be Drug Free campaign, Carlos Vieira Foundation raises awareness about drug abuse, donates to drug-free programs, and brings drug-free speakers into schools to educate youth. The Race to Be Drug-Free campaign's main program is the Gloves Not Drugs boxing program. This program is completely free for kids between the ages of 8 and 17 to learn discipline, strength, respect, camaraderie, and the art of boxing. The program was created to keep kids off the streets, out of gangs, and away from drugs. For more info and to get involved, check out carlosvierafoundation.org. All right. Ready? Sure. You ready? Yep. Are you positive? Wait. I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Teeth in the tongue. Come on. 
My fourth grade lisp is going to come out. That's all right. You're good. <laughs> What's up, guys? What's, What's, What's up, your name? Guys? Jason Van Dusen. <laughs> <laughs> they, they call me JVD. Uh, JVD. Knocking doors down. Jason Van Dusen, personal friend, works with us. Absolutely. JV Dizzle. Welcome to the show, man. And uh, thank you. Th- thank you for sharing your story because uh, it's it's funny. Until we had some work trips, I didn't know that you struggled with addiction of any kind. What uh, what were the substances? And so my uh, my drug of choice back in the day, and I'm uh, I'm working on 17 years clean right now. Hell yeah! Uh, was nice. methamphetamine and cocaine. Fuck, man. Yeah. When did we fall into that? Gosh, my uh, my story with that kind of hit me uh, in my late teen years, so 17, 18 years old, right after graduating high school. Yeah, and uh, just kind of got caught up in a in a scene of trying to please the peers around me, and uh, I tended to be more of a follower in those in those aspects, you know. Yeah, um, other friends started doing things and. Specifically, the cocaine. Other friends started doing things, and 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 I wanted to be part of that. Um, the meth was kind of my own thing. It was kind of the first time in my drug world that I wanted to be the leader. So I started that on my own. My other friends didn't really partake. Hey, yeah, fuck. So when you saw it for the first time, were you like scared of it, or Blown were you away. interested? I was or? freaked out. Yeah, I can imagine. Same here. The first time I saw cocaine. Yeah, there's too. specific memories in my head that I have of, uh, you know, walking into a party and seeing one of my good friends. You know, with a giant mirror on the bed, with a you know two foot line of cocaine ready to go, not realizing how many people did it until you're in the room doing it Absolutely. with everybody. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it was one of those things where it was a freak out moment. Quickly turned around, left the party. Mm-hmm. Don't know what I just saw. Freaked out a little bit, and then I think less than two weeks later, I was doing it myself. Right. That's a pretty quick turnaround for being freaked out and then doing it two weeks later. That's why I said the peer pressure was a big part of it because that that friend of mine that was doing it, you know, in that room at that time, really started talking about, you know, the fun side of it. Yeah, you know, sure. And it was always like, okay, well, if it's that much fun, like, yeah, I'll try it. Yeah, <laughs> well, we, that, and that's where it starts, right? It's yeah. like I'll try it. Yeah, because it's a, we always talk about it, and anyone. Uh, you know, it was fucking fun when it started, <laughs> you know, but as we quickly know, it goes a completely different direction that takes you south. Yeah, so, and I think the grip it has over you, like it, it hits you hard and you don't even realize it has that grip. Yeah. So uh, the first time you did it, were you intoxicated or did you? I, I've like, never been you, an, a real alcohol guy. Okay. So no, to answer your question, uh-huh. I wasn't intoxicated. Um, it was just seeing that freaked out a couple weeks later you know being around those same friends in a party atmosphere where um it was available yeah and it was kind of like i didn't want to be the only guy not doing it Mm -hmm. sure so let's jump in yeah how'd you feel felt great first time you did it you loved it you know that's the scary part of it was the enjoyment aspect of it Mm -hmm. was the biggest grip you know what i mean it was like once you did it, it was like i i love this yeah i really do i love this Mikey, you know, you and I have talked. It's, yeah. uh, you know, there's there's a point where you're like, you know, you're. Um, I was productive. I was, you know, I could say sentences and felt like a scholar. You know what I mean? I right. could. I told Mikey, I right. could felt like I could go give a conference speech. You know what I mean? And nail it. Right. So you know, you start getting that, and you don't see the negative. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, it's like, well, why stop? Yeah. Nothing bad's happening to me. Why stop? 
Sure. And that's a pretty um, crazy way to go into it. Like, you did it for the first time, and you loved it. Like, when I did it for the first time, my mind was going crazy. It was just like, I can't believe I just did this. What Am I Am I going to be hyper? Am I going to be able to sleep tonight? Like, I, I, don't, I don't really know what to expect, you know? And I, I, the first time I touched it, I didn't touch it again for a long time. And I only did it the first time because it was just there. But the first time I seen it, I was in high school, and I saw it, and I was like, oh, my gosh, this is exactly what my parents warned me about, is this moment right here, yeah. <laughs> seeing it. And, but for you yeah. to have the two-week turnaround, that that's just that that's amazing to me. Like, you saw it, and you were so freaked out, and then you did it two weeks later. It's like, so you had to have been thinking about it. I like, was more freaked out about seeing my friend doing it. Right. right. Not the drug. Almost kind of, like, disappointed in yeah. him? Or yeah, it was, it was more of a disappointment. Like, I never thought I would walk into a room and see one of my good friends that I've known since elementary school... Doing drugs. You know, having a, a line of cocaine or doing drugs yeah. in general, whatever yeah. it was. Yeah. That was the scary part, freak-out moment for me. It wasn't, like, the cocaine. It wasn't that. It was just, I have a friend that's literally upstairs, you know, with a mirror on a bed yeah. with four other guys in there, and they're sniffing lines. Like, they're doing something. Like, that. that was the fearful side of it for me sure. that was the freak out moment you know so that that turn around and walk out wasn't necessarily because i didn't want to be around the drugs it was because i didn't want to necessarily sit there and watch my friend you know doing what he was doing and experiencing that so well, that makes more sense then yeah, it wasn't yeah. in fact the drug it was that you saw your friend do it. yeah i get that yeah and then you know getting into it honestly when it comes to i mean i started smoking cigarettes you know what i mean when i was 13 14 years old my mm -hmm. dad was a smoker and when I tried cocaine, you know, I didn't really have that initial reaction of, you know, ooh, I'm scared, what's this gonna be like, you know? Mm -hmm. Because experience, experimenting with cigarettes for the first time had that same effect, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? It was sure. like, yeah, I've seen them smoke it, I know the process, I know what to do, but really, what's that gonna feel like when I actually inhale, yeah. you know what I mean? So once I did that, or, or started smoking marijuana, you know what I mean? Right. Which, you know, is again, part of my addiction, Right, mm -hmm. but uh, once I did that, it, it kind of removed the the fear of that something bad was going to happen when I started experimenting with other things. Right. Yeah. So cigarettes and weed were kind of the icebreaker. You know, I I don't I don't know if I necessarily you know agree with people that say it's the gateway drug. You know sure. what I mean? I definitely think it opens your mind up. I don't right? agree with that at all. Not at all. It just it you know it it, it eliminated that. You know, your, your parents growing up, right? Stay off drugs, the mm -hmm. say no to drugs, the dare programs, all these things. It was Hell, all about. I, I had fucking Winnie the Pooh as a kid. Oh, don't, <laughs> don't do drugs. You know, the, I mean, so. if Pooh said don't do it, then you don't if do Pooh it. Pooh said don't do it. But a lot of that, you know, uh, you know, this is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. Like those yeah. things were all about the catastrophic things that could happen if you partake. Right. Yep. Once I started smoking cigarettes and weed, those things were like, all right, I'm good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know? Having the opportunity, and again, led by peer pressure to, to dive into cocaine and, and just start, you know, going down that road wasn't an issue. The fear wasn't there. Right. Then kicked in the, what I thought were the positive sides, mm -hmm. the fun, yeah. you know, the, the articulation and what I was saying, right? The, the, the ability to do things and, and I don't know, it was just, it was just, there was more highs to it, pun right. intended, than there was negative effects for me in the beginning. Mm -hmm. In the beginning. So. Let's jump back a little bit. You talk about dad. Dad was a smoker. So what was uh, Jason like as a little kid and what was growing up, man? You know, I grew up in a pretty safe and normal suburb family home. Yeah. You know, um, I have an older brother. 
Um, so two kids and, and two parents and my parents were, you know, married when I was young and, uh, life was good. I was, it was normal. I was a spoiled little kid. Is there any know? addictions in the family besides cigarettes? Um, no, no, no. I mean, uh, on my mom's side of the family, there was, you know, some drug use. Sure. Sure. Um, I don't, I don't need to this day. I don't know all the full details. I know even my dad, uh, got into the pot game. Um, but he never smoked it. He was just a dealer. I'll be damned. Really? He, he grew it in his backyard. Oh, see, my dad's he, the same way. He's a little hippie. He smokes. We still to this day. My dad's a, a surfer <laughs> from Huntington Beach, <laughs> yeah, you know? And, yeah, right. yeah. Um, so he was that guy that, uh, you know, he didn't necessarily want to smoke it. He just wanted to, you know, uh, supply it. Sure. So, um, yeah, when I was, in fact, I, you know, as you get older, you, you dig through the chest of old pictures. Oh, yeah. <laughs> One of the pictures I, br- I brought out or I found was my brother holding a little uh, watering can standing in the bathroom watering the weed plants. I wanted you to say the picture was me holding a weed plant. I really <laughs> wanted you to say that. And we we have to get that picture, but I yeah, guess we'll not. we'll pop that up on the clip. It needs to go No, but it was one of those pictures where that's that's where I started the conversation. I think I was about 16 years old when I started the conversation and found out about my dad. Um, so no, to answer your question, there wasn't any uh, previous addiction, um, I think on my mom's side, my uncle uh, was, again, big into marijuana. I think he did get into some heavier, harder drugs, uh, but sure. I don't know too many details about that. So, But my childhood was relatively normal. I mean, go to school and... Sports, that kind of shit. Big big athlete. Baseball was my sport. Soccer. Yeah. I was uh, heavily involved in sports, and life was good, yeah. you know? Um, there came a point when I was, uh, you know, it's it's this is the trauma side of my story, my parents got divorced mm-hmm. and I, I can't even look back now and say exactly how old I was. I was just going to ask how old you were. I think I was around 11 or 12 mm-hmm. when my parents got divorced. Um, there was, you know, a, a bit, the, the trauma to me was seeing my parents interact previous to the legal part of it. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, their, their separation of, you know, love wasn't there anymore and anger now became part of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Disagreements all the time and. Yeah. You know, things things were happening. And, and as a kid, you know, at that age, you're witnessing this, you know, uh, times where my parents would fight and my dad would go, you know, punch a hole through our bathroom door. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, seeing that as a kid is pretty traumatic. More with Jason Van Dusen coming up on Knocking Doors Down. We dig a little bit more into uh, trauma, how the divorce of his parents really affected him and their behavior thus after, which is tough for anyone uh, having my kids gone through it so I can understand. Plus... We do get into some of those fun random questions and what Jason's doing now in life in sobriety giving back. This is Knocking Doors Down. 5150 is a lifestyle. We believe in pushing yourself, finding your passion, knowing your dreams and working hard, and always striving to make those dreams your reality. We believe life is too short to sit back and say, what if? Go after it, grab it, and make it happen. Being 5150 is committing to that long, hard road. That road you know is going to be tough, but the most rewarding. That's living the madness. That's 5150. If you're living the 5150 lifestyle, then celebrate by rocking the goods. So listen up. There's a special deal for listeners of Knocking Doors Down. Go to 5150LTM.com and enter code KDD20 and receive 20% off your purchase. That's 51FIFTYLTM.com. There's a lot of times, I mean, even today in, in the, the programs that I'm involved in, you know, we talk about, you know, traumatic situations that might have led to things, right? And yeah. some of the people I talk to have amazing stories. Mm-hmm. And when I say amazing, I mean, just completely like, I can understand why you went to drugs. Yeah. I can understand why you did that, right? My wife's one of those. 
you know, her, her background, but mine was okay. I had, I had it. My parents got divorced. I mean, I don't even know what the accurate stats are these days, but it's like 50% of all marriages end in divorce anyway. So it's really no surprise. Right. But to me, it was the process in which my parents were arguing, you know, all the things they went through when they, they finally got divorced and my dad moved out of the house, it became this, which parent am I going to go live with? Right. Yeah. And it was difficult as a kid. Um, well, even statistics aside, you never expect it to happen to your parents. No. You know? So that, yeah, that's yeah, got to be traumatic. Well, and, and, you know, it's kind of the thing that, you know, they say don't don't compare yourself to, to others when it comes to success, but you can't when it comes to negatives either because, you know, we all have uh, this, you know, our brains forming when we're kids and not re- reaching maturation until you're in your early 20s. Yeah. And so those little things and those pinpoint things, you know, they, they stand out for people no matter what. And someone, you know, we were joking about the, uh, from uh, Half-Baked Bob Saget, you oh, know. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. You ever suck dick for, <laughs> for coke? <laughs> you know, weed, that's it, you know. But it's like <laughs> everyone can have yeah. their certain traumas. I got mine. You know, Mikey might have some of his that trigger whatever it is. They're all something because now you're having to deal with an adverse situation of, like you said, do I go live with mom? Do I go live with dad? What's the co-custody? You know, it, it's fucking tough on kids. As a, a father of, you know, my kids having to deal with that, it's tough for them to bounce back and forth. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, th- I think the most difficult decision was when my mom decided to move to Oregon. Mm. Um, I was, I think, eighth grade freshman in high school when she decided to. So where were you from before Oregon? So I'm, I'm originally from Livermore. California. Okay. I don't think I knew Bay that. Area. Yeah, that's where I'm, I'm, I'm born. Yeah, East Side or East Bay. East Bay. Not really East Bay, but it was called East Bay. Right. Um, but yeah, I was, I was, you know, that's where we were from. And my mom ha- had all her family up in, in Oregon. Mm-hmm. And uh, when the house sold, when they officially got divorced and separated, my dad worked and stayed here. My mom, you know, for a few years raised me and my brother, mm-hmm. you know, in, a, in an apartment in Livermore. And after that, she decided to pack up and go to Oregon. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, I'm left in this position of, do I go and you know be with my mom, or do I stay and finish my high school? And I leaned on the side of staying, because it was like, well, I don't want to leave high school. I don't want to start over somewhere fresh. Yeah. So I stayed here with my dad. The problem was, you know, my dad um, you know, was now a newly divorced father. Mm-hmm. Who knows what he was paying, and whether alimony or child support or whatever. Right. And uh, he rented a room from a, you know, a few guys. And in order for me to live with him, we had to basically pay for another room. So quickly at 14, 14 and a half years old, uh, you know, I was trying to go through high school, play sports. And uh, here Social I am, life. here I am paying rent, you know, right. to help my dad out for this, this room that we're, that we're living in. Um, so that was difficult. I kind of grew up, I had to grow up really fast, yeah. um, which also was a big key in, you know, the later dabblings in my, in my drug days. But yeah, I stayed with him, would go to high school, play baseball practice after school or do the games. And then after that, I'd go to work telemarketing till about 10 or 11. I was going to ask, where the fuck are you getting a job at 14? Calling East coast people and trying to get them to refinance their homes over the phone. Uh, okay. Yeah. So you're calling them at like 10 at night, Eastern time? To- well, no, it's uh, it, at 10 o'clock Pacific time. So okay. Eastern. One? Yeah. I mean, it was, there was different time zones, different times of the night. You know what sure. I mean? So by 10 o'clock, I'm sure we weren't calling people in New York. But 
Um, I know, you know, quickly after that job, if it started at 6 p.m. or something like that, we were hitting the Eastern time. So yeah, right. we were we were dialing people and getting them to refinance their house at 9 p.m. at night or something like that. As a so, 14 year old kid, yeah, insane, yeah, with a work permit dude. from high school, right? Yeah, yeah, because I got my first job back when you could get it at 14. Yep. And nowadays, I, like, I don't even think they do that anymore. No, I think you got to be 16 now. I yeah. Believe. I no, I was. Uh, I had a work now. permit at high school that let me out at certain times if I needed to go to work early yeah. or whatnot, but. Either way, it just felt like, you know, I had entered entered adulthood, like, yeah. you know, really young. And it was like, yeah. all right, it's it's time. This is life. And that's when yeah. you started smoking cigarettes, too. Cigarettes was, yeah, 13, yeah. 14 years old. I really, you know, started, uh, I was stealing packs from my dad. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a funny story, man. <laughs> Go for it. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, stealing packs of cigarettes from my dad. And, you know, uh, as much as he smoked and as many cartons that he had sitting around, I never figured, right. oh, he's never going to notice, right? Um, in my full-time cigarette smoking days, I notice when a pack's gone, right? Oh, uh, you notice that. <laughs> cigarette smokers notice. Exactly. So um, there was this time, I think I must have been 16, 17 by then. But, uh, you know, I, yeah, I started when I was 13, 14, stealing packs from him, buying them occasionally. Um, but if they were free and I can get them from him, no problem. So I'd, I'd take a pack. Well, one time I take a pack and I'm going out and we're hanging out with our, our friends and what we called our chill spots you know what i mean go smoke some weed and you know smoke some cigarettes and just hang out right and i, I i'm packing this pack and i uh, i go to open it and i look on it it's got writing on it, it says uh i know you've been taking my cigarettes we'll talk when you get home uh <laughs> your stomach drop no no it didn't like, man fuck you dad <laughs> <laughs> Again, the relationship my dad and I had at that time felt more like a roommate thing. Yeah, right. yeah. Um, you know, he was in a tough spot, right? That's sure. that's a tough thing to do. Now I can look back and say that's that's tough. You know, raising a teenage boy, and uh, again, I had my older brother that at that point was you know trying to go off to college and do that thing. He was kind of on his own. Um, so yeah, I, I I really just smoked as many cigarettes as I could out of that pack before I had to go home and discuss it with my dad. And mm -hmm. that discussion was really just, hey, buy them on your own. <laughs> You know, this is my money. I feel I like worked, I work hard for that. Cool with stuff like that. When my dad asked me if I smoked, I just said, yeah. I don't know if it was cool or just he didn't want to deal with it. Well, yeah. Right? Yeah. That's a good point, too. It's like, because he, the way he handled it was like, more or less, okay, well, we never had this talk and don't let your mother smell it on you. You know what I mean? It's like, it maybe he... Well, we kind of have that generation of parents, too. I mean, I know... <clears throat> more your story and mine similar than than mikey's where it's almost like you're a fucking latchkey kid you're almost under under your own volition to just kind of figure it the fuck out when my mom left the state it was free reign right i could go and stay at a friend's house for two weeks my dad wouldn't give a shit mm. you know what i mean um when i saw him he'd probably say something like w where you been yeah oh i've just been at you know luke's house i've been a friend you know whatever it was it was just like but it wasn't when it came down to dealing with the the consequences of my actions, yeah, it didn't yeah. exist. Yeah, yeah. No, I never got in trouble in high school. Not that I was, you know, because I didn't start drinking or anything. People don't believe it till after high school. I was the dude that just got drunk people home and all that shit. But I definitely would disappear for a week on end or whatever. And <laughs> once girls were discovered, yep. there was yep. a lot of a lot of disappearing. Gosh, I was uh, in trouble in high school all the time, man. Parties, cops being called. Remember, dad just picking me up and just looking at me but i was never really afraid of my dad as much as i was my mom she's a hispanic mother 100%. so she you know we'd have to hide the wooden spoons and the shoes because pretty much anything would she that, get you with the chuncleta pretty what? much anything <laughs> that you could throw she would if you pissed her off and yeah no dad would he was always cool with it 
dad, when he reached that level of temper, right, it was like, oh shit. I was more afraid of getting bad grades than I was getting caught being drunk with my dad. I could see that. Yeah. I got to say, when in my party days at high school, again, I wasn't really a big drinker, so I'd go to these parties and maybe drink a beer or something like that. But uh, I had this like intuition whenever we were at parties mm-hmm. or hanging out doing something we weren't supposed to do. I was the guy that like saved everybody's ass. Sounds like it was familiar. that. Guys, I think we need to go around this corner really quick because I think there's cops coming. And oh, sure geez. as shit, you know, we go around this corner and, you know what I mean, whoop, whoop, lights come and everybody's fleeing the party and we're like, well, we're already gone. So ah. thanks, j Dog. you know. Yeah. Cigarettes actually was, it was funny. That was my cover. Anytime we'd smoke, you know, anytime we'd light a bowl or a joint or a blunt or hit a bong, whatever it was with marijuana, I would always smoke a cigarette. And my friends would kind of be like, man, Jay, we don't want to, we don't want to smell that. Why are you doing that? Like we're smoking right now. Like we, we like this. We don't like that. So right. stop. And I'm like, ah, guys, I can't. I just do it for cover. Yeah. And every time, I swear, it was like, it was good that we had that cigarette burning right now because the right. cop pulled up and they didn't smell the weed because I was smoking cigarettes. So, you know, it was weird. I had this weird intuition. So I didn't get, a, I didn't get in trouble with the cops mm-hmm. at all. Actually, I think I got a minor in possession of alcohol from beer that my dad bought me when I was 18 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't a party scene, you know what I mean? It was just, right. I got caught with beer. Yeah, so. which is also interesting too, because you know, when we've talked about it, like you can you can drink, not an issue. Mikey, the same thing. Me, the other drugs, eh, never really touched, or if I did, it was on occasion and no big deal, nothing. But boy, booze for me, whatever reason. So it's yeah. weird too yeah. how we're all so unique in that situation as well. But well, there uh, was a point I'm sure in my life that I, I know there was a point in my late high school years that going to a house party and, and holding on to my, you know, fifth of Bacardi mm-hmm. was my thing. But it wasn't because I liked drinking and I needed it. It was because I wanted to impress everybody around me. Sure, yeah. Sure. That was it. You have to be drinking at parties when you're that young to look cool in front of the girl or yeah. something like that. Yeah, I get it. The that. early days, it was just holding a beer and walking around with it. Keystone. And that thing was full for three hours. Keystone ice, baby. <laughs> <Yeah>. Keystone light. <laughs> I think it's because I got yelled at so much as a kid by my grandparents. If you open a beverage, finish it all. And I shit you not, that still goes into my head to this day. It's like, oh, well, when I drink, well, that beer is empty or that thing, you know, don't waste it. It's like, oh, Jesus H. Well, that's the difference in my childhood. My dad wasn't a drinker. My mom wasn't a drinker. So alcohol really wasn't in our house except for decor. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? The old uh, whatever, Steins and all those, you know, the crystal. Shag carpet too? Uh (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think I was pretty young when they had that, yeah. but uh, yeah, they quickly transitioned into a you know more updated carpet yeah, when yeah, I was yeah. you know in my uh, noticeable age. But yeah, my parents didn't really drink, so that's I, I think that's the biggest reason I think alcohol never really became sure. a big issue or a you know a need for me. Well, and so. yeah, that being the case, it probably would have. Obviously, case in point for cigarettes. I'm sure, your dad hadn't have smoked. You probably wouldn't have either, because you wouldn't have been able to get your hands on them so easily. Yeah, I, so, I, I think so. We could say lesson his parents, right? All right, so starting to do blow at this point. You 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 like it? You're enjoying? It, you know, you're getting the glamorous side of it. When do things start to go south? And let alone head towards meth. So. Cocaine was, uh, you know, the drug of choice for a year or so. And, uh, you know, it really just, it became a problem when, you know, you start driving out of your way to find it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, but again, even in that, I, 
I didn't, you know, there wasn't the, the law side of it. You know what I mean? I never got busted with cocaine and had to do time or anything like that. So mm -hmm. I was always grateful. And, you know, today I thank God for, you know, just covering me in that. Right. But yeah, yeah I just, um, you know, it was this just hanging out scene, you know, even if it wasn't going to parties, it was make sure I had my eight ball. Um, if I didn't, one of my friends did, mm -hmm. and I knew it was going to be a good night, you know, mixing oh, yeah. that with things like jib, GHB. That was my the the date rape drug. Oh, jib. Yeah, there was this thing called jib that came out, GHB, and it was, uh, you know, they'd have little water bottles like this and full of GHB, and you'd take a cap and pour a cap, and you'd take that, and it was like the equivalent of like six beers. Oh. I've never heard of that. Yeah, um, so that became, that and cocaine were like, all right, this party's going, and it's going to be amazing. Was it like homemade, or did you buy it? Tell you the truth, I don't remember. That's Shit. what it did to me. Yeah. yeah, it was called GHB. Look it up. It, it is the, known as the date rape drug yeah. now. But yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, between that and cocaine, it was just, you know, fun nights of grabbing our guitars and jamming as friends and, you know, just playing music and getting stoned and taking a rail and taking a cap. And all of a sudden you're like, all right, I feel great. My night's great. I'm having so much fun and, right. and no consequences. You know what I mean? Again, we weren't out in the public area. We were always safe doing it, you know, in the comfort of my friend's home or something like that, which is funny because their parents were always home. But, right. um, and it's not like their parents condoned the action. It's just, they didn't know. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> which goes to show, <laughs> hey parents, pay really close fucking attention to your kids because it's like you you and a couple other assholes. Yeah, man, play fucking fog hat again, man. I mean, there was times they might have come outside and were, you know, yeah. under the street light with a big cloud of smoke going up to it that I'm sure they knew what was going on. Right. But uh, this specific set of parents was not the, you know, not the type to question us, you mm. know, as far as what we were doing. And they, they kind of probably were more that hippie style, you know what I mean, right. growing up. So. so when did the coke turn into meth? So cocaine continued. I continued that usage all through the next three or four years. Okay. Okay. The meth really came in. I, I got a job. Um, so wh while doing coke and doing all this stuff, I was still going to school, and I, yeah, I got my degrees. Yeah, I went to a tech school and got my associates in graphic design, and you know went off in uh, uh, to Chico and, and got a business degree, and you know was working. Uh, when I got out of school and stuff, I was trying to get a job in my field, but it was so difficult. So mm -hmm. I ended up getting a job in a uh, shipping and receiving warehouse for a power cord company, and. Uh, Hey, it paid the bills, right? Yeah. Um, but it was hard work. And I remember going into that job one day, there was this guy, Randy, and he was this, uh, he was this guy that did some, you know, uh, detail work on these power cords or whatnot before we shipped them out, custom orders, right? He was always in what we called light assembly. He was the guy in the back. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a lot of the people that I worked with were older. Um, but uh, Randy, you know, there's one day I walked in, I was just, you know, kind of tired, kind of just putting around, really didn't feel motivated to do anything. And Randy kind of gave me this pill and he goes, here, just, you know, if you're feeling down, then take this and it'll, it'll help you. I, I live off them. And I'm like, okay, you know, Tylenol, sure, great. It was like a little Tylenol gel cap. All right. I took that thing and, oh man, it was the most productive day of my existence at that job. I was pulling orders. I was lifting 100 pound boxes i mean it was just like yeah i got this man what is so every day it became brandy do you got another one of those you know what i mean like i, I could use another you know pick me up what do you you know what do you got it wasn't until I, I probably did that for a week or two weeks not knowing exactly what i was actually popping in my system until another lady uh her name was becky that came and said 
you realize what he's giving you, right? And I was like, what? She's like, that's crystal meth. But he, he used to take the Tylenol gel caps and he'd put the crystal meth in it and then he would drink it so it would dissolve and oh, he would shit. have the meth in his system. Huh. Ingest it. And uh, so she said, that's, that's crystal meth. And I, you know, there was that freak out moment. And this time it was about what I just did. Right. Because I, I think there was conversations that we had with my friends that it was like, I'm, I will never do crank or meth or, you know, n- I won't oh, do yeah. any of that stuff. I'll stick with my cocaine, my, my marijuana. And my and, jib. And my jib. <laughs> my jib. <laughs> you guys got a completely different thing down in Oregon, man. You got jib. You got crystal This was California, brother. California. Oh, was it? Oh, yeah. fuck. I was going to say. This is California. Yeah, what you you got... haven't heard of GHB? I've never heard of okay, it. Okay, you got to do I, some I, research. Yeah, it's, uh, after you mentioned the other date rape drug. Yeah, yeah. It, they didn't really call well, it the date, date rape drug. drug but obviously. they didn't call it the date rape drug until after. Okay. Yeah, but uh, in the party days, it was called GHB. No that's, shit. That's what you got. Um. So yeah, Becky was like, yeah, it's crystal meth and I'm kind of blown away going, but I, I couldn't get over how it was making me feel and how productive right. I was doing it. Right. So again, the, the, the bad side of it quickly kind of just floated away and it was like, well, fuck it. I, I like felt it. great. Yeah. It gave me energy. You know, I'm in a job that requires a lot of physical exertion and energy. All right, let's do this. You know, well, she introduced me. She said, well, you know, I have some in a bag form that you can just, you know, either sniff or, you know, and she's like, well, I, I smoke it out of a pipe. And I'm like, oh, you can smoke it too? So everybody was doing it out there? Or? Oh, that, it was like the whole warehouse was mm, all involved in it. Yeah. It was kind of a, it was a weird situation. You know what that I mean? That is. Like doing, doing my coke and all that, I felt safe. Yeah. All of a sudden I'm in this job. I feel safe still because I'm in this job where I've been around people. And man, it was just, I don't know. It just something clicked in my head that was like, all right, I'm doing this. Yeah. And now it became the curiosity of, I, I ingested it and I know how it made me feel. How's it going to make me feel if I sniff it? How's it going to make me feel if I smoke it? And what is that process like? Mm-hmm. You know, that was a big curiosity. Like you can smoke this. Okay. Right. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I ended up, uh, she gave me a couple freebies and again, th- all the while I wasn't paying for this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? He'd just give me a capsule and that was it. So Becky had given me, you know, a couple of bags to try on my own. I remember um, the this process of getting these air freshener pipes that you can get at the gas stations. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I'd go back to Becky and I'd say, she said, well, just go pick up one of these glass, you know, air freshener things. Yeah, yeah, I remember Bring that. it back to me and I'll, I'll make you a pipe. And I'm like, okay, cool. So in the meantime, I had tried sniffing it. I, I did that and I, I, I liked it, you know, I, I liked ingesting sniffing it more cause it was shards. easy. You know what I mean? Sure. It was easier just to ingest it and yeah, sniffing it, especially, uh, the crank version of it, which That's is the dirty. Burns. Yeah. There was a burn, but with my history of cocaine, you know, there's certain cocaines that I would take, but it would burn. You know what I mean? So I wasn't, I wasn't concerned about that. Right. Right. Um, but all of a sudden she comes back with this, this pipe. I think it was the next day or whatever it was. And now instead of a straight little, you know, test tube looking thing, it's got a big bubble on the end with a hole in the side. And mm. I'm going, oh, okay, how do we do this? So I think one lunch, her and I went out to the parking lot and she kind of showed me the process of, you know, putting the crystal meth down in the pipe, melting it up, melting it and letting it dry up the stem to be able to save some for later type thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's when I started smoking meth. And, uh, 
that's when things started to get that's when the that's when the addicted or the addiction really kicked in you know what i mean because then with coke i still felt like there was days that i could say i'm good yeah you know what i mean yeah or even weeks that i can say ah i'm good my nose is raw i need to take a break you know what i mean when i started the meth that was really the point where it was like i need it you know what i mean like i can't function unless i have my fix like okay and uh and again in that in that moment i didn't i didn't think it was an addiction it was just still having fun with it right mm-hmm. so quickly it just turned into educating myself on the process blowing my own pipes and because those things didn't last forever sometimes you burn through them and waste your drugs at the same time and it just became that's what i did i went to work i got my meth from work i uh i worked my butt off because meth made me feel amazing (laughs) so going into it did they look like because typically people who are addicted to meth look like they're addicted to meth did these people providing the meth before you took the pill the first day look like there was something a little off about them randy did yes okay and you still took a pill from him i did i did um and you still took a pill from so well but (laughs) i'm a people person but you're but but you're what at this age 20 23 24 i am uh no i'm uh 18 18, 18 19 you started there yeah so when were you you already had degrees by that point so it was all in the same window. Okay. So when I was working this job, I was still going to college. Oh, I, okay. At some point, um, you know, I, I had gone to Chico, escaped it all, but came right back. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. After I was done. Um, I was on the fast track system with school. So instead of a full two years, you know what I mean? To get my degree, I fast tracked. So it was like 12 months, 13, 14 months. Mm-hmm. So that time went by fast. But I was, again, I always say that I was a very productive addict, right? Everything I was doing, I was working, I was going to school, I was paying my bills, I was... I wasn't dropping the ball on anything. I maintained yeah. a girlfriend or, you know, yeah. whoever I was seeing at the same time. Those girlfriends didn't know what I was doing, right? So it was, I'm not doing anything wrong because, uh, you know, nothing's messing up in my life. Yeah, you're a fucking juggler and a half. Yeah. So where it really started to get dark was the just the, the need for it. And when I couldn't yeah. find it, the extent I would go to get some. Not necessarily blowjobs in the back alley, mm-hmm. but uh, but, you know, it was just like, hey, it's midnight and I'm out. All right, call my dealer, call Randy, call Becky. Nobody's got it. All right, what am I going to do? Page some buddies, because that time it was pagers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Page some friends. Hey, hey uh, what's a pager? <laughs> look at Google it. <laughs> <laughs> call, you know, page some friends and say, hey, I'm, I'm completely, I need some help here. Dude, it's 12 o'clock at night. Why are you? I don't care. I need it, dude. Come on, make it happen. All yeah. right, well, I got a friend, you know. Again, I was in Livermore. I got I got a buddy in Stockton, you know what I mean, that I know that can that can get it for you right now if you want it. All right, yeah, line it up. Give me, you know, $500 worth. Yeah. And again, working. I didn't know yeah. other bills except for rent occasionally, you know, with my dad and, or rent with my dad and occasional car insurance that I, you know, when I kept it up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I, you know, I had the money. So I would, you know, take a midnight drive from Livermore to Stockton, which is, you know, 45-minute hour drive. Yeah, it's not and, that far from each other. Um, grab my, my stuff and head back home and then it was stay in my you know at the time I was still living with my dad uh, by this time he had his own condo that he had so we were out of this whole situation of sharing with other roommates right sure. um, so I remember this condo had a you know two-story setup garages on the bottom living areas up top mm-hmm. so I spent days in that garage and I would dabble with music and I'd record and make little beats on my you know computer or whatnot and I would just sit there and smoke meth 
by that time in my by that time in my meth career, <laughs> um, I had kind of dragged some of my friends into it. Mm-hmm. You know, it was kind of one of these things like, hey, you guys are, you know, you think Coke is good? Try this stuff. You know what I mean? And uh, a couple of them were like, no way, dude, we're not going down that route. And actually, we kind of separated at that time because it was like they didn't want to hang out with somebody that was doing that kind of stuff. And uh, But there was a few friends that were like, yeah, let's do it. And uh, I remember days just nights being in that garage and smoking meth and I'd, I'd hear a, you know, knock on my little garage door. And I'd open the garage at, you know, one in the morning and it's my buddy. He'd come in and we'd just sit there and together and we'd smoke meth. Four, five, six in the morning. Am I tired? Yeah. Am I going to bed? Nope. Yeah. And uh, that was the process. That was every night, every day. There did be, you know, come some days where, you know, at six in the morning, I didn't have any more meth and I crashed. Mm Mm-hmm. I was going to say you had to have crashed eventually. Yeah, no, I crashed and, uh, you know, wake up at four in the afternoon calling my employer going, I'm so sorry, making up whatever lie I could to, you know, uh, avoid being fired. And, um, but that was, I want to say that was probably about, you know, at least till I was about 20, 20 years old that I was doing that. So six months to a year in that range, mm-hmm. just spending nights in the, in the garage and smoking meth. You know, fuck. Yeah. At what point was was the yeah, sorry? At what point were you like, fuck? This is bad. This shit is getting out of control. All my money's going towards this. Granted, you didn't have that many bills, but five hundred bucks. Oh, every every extra cent I have went towards drugs. So sure. when was it like? There was a point. Fuck. There was a point where I I had a a binge, um, and I had enough meth. I want to say I had like a couple ounces mm-hmm. and it was, uh, it was enough to get me some hard jail time. So it was more like, I need to do this as fast as I could. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The danger of doing all that, you know, in, in one, two, three, four sittings wasn't even, a, you know, an, a, a part of my mindset at the time. Sure. The, the time that it really hit me that I go, I have, a, I have a problem is, uh, so I, 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 I had a, I had a moment where I was not a moment. It was 16 days of no sleep. Oh, fucking Jeez. shit, man. Yeah, 16 days of... And within that 16 days, I had also... Because I had talked to you about this too. Is like in, in my addiction, I was really good at... Even though I wasn't hungry on meth, you know, when you're, when you're doing meth, you just don't want to eat. There's the right. appetite suppression is just, you know, it's there. But I would force myself. So I'd go grab Taco Bell and mm-hmm. grab a couple burritos because I, I love Taco Bell. And I know I can hammer down a couple burritos even if I'm not hungry. So I maintained that my weight, you know, I didn't shrink down. You know, I was probably 190 pounds and, you know, I still looked normal. You know what I mean? Sure. That 16-day stretch is the stretch where I lost about 40 pounds mm-hmm. in fuck. 16 days. And that's when people started noticing that's yeah. when my girlfriend at the time, um, my mom, when I would visit her, you know, my dad would notice that. I was going to say, was your dad catching looking, on to any of this? Like, that's the funny thing. Like, my dad was so preoccupied with his life. You know, he was involved with, he, you know, he's an air, air uh, he's a, a, a pilot, you know, he worked at an airport, still does. Um, you know, he's been working at an airport for 40 years. Like, sure. His, his world was that airport, mm-hmm. you know, he built helicopters for people like Jeff Dunham, you know, oh, he, he built his helicopter, right? 
those like he was just so preoccupied with his life mm -hmm. but there was there was another thing about meth is that there really was no smell to it oh you could smoke it no there really wasn't you can exhale that's interesting because you know, yeah that that's a good thing for people listening to maybe if you're worried about someone that you know it's not because i would think because when it's being cooked you can smell the fuck out of it. Yeah, when the it's process being made. of making it. Yeah. So I would have thought there would have been some sort of scent or smell or something to it as well, because I personally had never been around it. And then he said, situation. "There might have if if I was blowing that that exhale right into your face, you right. could probably smell something." It's like the vape pen. Yeah. Like if I'm blowing it in your face, you could smell it. But if I've been smoking it all day in this room, you would have no idea. But the other part of it was, you know, crystal meth. It's crystals. It right. forms crystals when you exhale. It yeah. forms crystals in your lungs. Mm -hmm. So there'd be times where, you know, at my, my dad's condo, I'd go into the bathroom sometimes, do my business, and I would, you know, smoke my meth in the bathroom. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I'd just exhale, put the fan on, and, but over time, I'd see little, you know, Things stuff building there, around yeah. the, the vent, you know what I mean? And, um, but my dad was none, you know, he none the wiser. He didn't really, again, he was always that dad that probably wasn't too concerned. Well, you know, yeah, I mean, with me. based off your guys' upbringing and you working at a super young age, he probably never the thought never crossed his mind dad yeah. well and even when happen. my parents were married he was never that dad that was hands-on right you know what right. i mean he's i mean with my kids his grandkids today mm -hmm. he's an amazing grandpa and, sure. and and i love seeing that but uh yeah in those days i don't think there was really any i wasn't a big concern I was well, just, he I, had his life he was doing his thing and he had his you know teenage son with him that was it my yeah. older brother was also going down a path that probably wasn't so he, so he had a lot of focus on him and sure I was I was just an afterthought. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was. Uh, my dad didn't know. Yeah. My dad didn't know. My mom was out of state. But anyways, people started really noticing when forty pounds drop off my body, and uh, I just remember kind of that oh shit moment. What am I doing? Because mm -hmm. even now, now that the concern is set in for my health, I still had to go get it. You know, it wasn't like. Holy, I, I just lost 40 pounds. People mm -hmm. are noticing, like, stop. Mm -hmm. That's done. You know what I mean? And uh, so it really became a problem then because my mind was saying, stop, no more. But my mind was also going, all right, um, so-and-so has an eight ball, you know what I mean? Like, ready to go of Coke. Mm -hmm. Let's go get it. You know what I mean? So-and-so had a, an ounce of meth. Let's go get it. You know? Oh, we don't have meth. Let's go get some. So it, it was always this it's not an option right. go get it go find it you know what i mean um and, and in that period of time when i'm still working the crazy part is you know i was at my job and i'd they'd kick me down bonuses for how much work i was doing <laughs> right well all, you know it's like i get a five thousand dollar bonus from this company for reorganizing the warehouse and they're impressed and i'm like oh yeah no problem i'll do that every month if you want me to you know there was always something up here that I was like, I can get that again. And yeah. uh, all I got to do is keep doing this. So the health side, like, yes, there was worry. There was concern. That was when, you know, it really started the fear set in sure. of what I'm doing. Um, but I still couldn't stop. I, you know, I knew at that point it was like, this is no longer just having fun. I am now an addict. Mm -hmm. Like this is, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. So. Hey, so, yeah. Uh, Single attempt in getting sober? How, what, uh, multiple attempts? Rehab? Multiple attempts. Yeah. Um, no rehab? No. Never went to rehab? Never. Wow. Never. Um, you know, again, today I, I, I give God all the credit for yeah. being with me in that situation. 
um, because you're a, you're a 12 stepper like I am, right? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I never, I never went to rehab. I never, I never got, you know, the law side of it. Never went to jail, never got caught with oh, it. There's goodness. been a lot of, uh, there's a lot of situations, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you know, getting pulled over and having to go through a field sobriety test while I'm freaking just baked off of my mind on meth and high as hell and passed the sobriety test and drove my friends home. You know, it was like that, oh, all that shit. baseball paid off, you know, <laughs> my eye hand coordination was, was great. Like, say, yeah. Um, so yeah, I never did rehab. Um, I, I attempted to quit a couple times when I would have to go, you know, like visit my mom in Oregon. Um, we would, uh, you know, I, I, I never wanted to travel with it. You know what I mean? So I would kind of pack it up in a safe and leave it there with my weed and my Coke and all that. And I'd try and leave it at home. And uh, in those travel days, I'd say, all right, I'm done. And when I get home, and of course, when I get to Oregon, I'm, you know, sleeping a lot and I'm doing, I'm basically crashing. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, there was never a time where, you know, I thought I had to go get external help to fix my problem. I can do it on my own. As soon as I returned back home, though, it was crack the safe and... Yeah. Go right back to it. As long as it's in your possession, you're going to do yeah. it. What's that withdrawal process like then if you're up there visiting your mom? Um, scary. Yeah. There was just, you know, there's there's times where paranoia is the biggest, uh, I guess, piece of the sure. the meth add- addiction. I mean, there'd, there'd be times I'd be sitting in my mom's living room. And even, even again, after, it's still in your system, right? So... I'd, I'd be sitting there just in the afternoon and I'd kind of just pop up on the couch and go, you know, hey, did you hear that? You know, what was that? My mom's kind of thinking I'm crazy or something, but. I can't imagine the paranoia with the fucking 16 days in a row up. You got to start seeing shit at that point. Yeah. You know, remember I said, you know, knock on the door for my friend. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And he'd come in. Those knocks become like every five minutes I'd hear a knock. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, you know, do my beat, take my hit and then. just sit still for 10 minutes, right. you know, and, and go, did I really just hear that? Sometimes I'd walk out the front door and look around and see if anybody's there. There was a part of me that a lot of my meth days were, you know, alone. Yeah. Right? But, uh, there was a part of me that was like just grasping for, I want somebody to join me, you know? Yeah. So I would, I think those knocks were more like, yeah, I want somebody here with me. Did I hear a knock? You mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, the 16 days, I can't even look back and say, like, I know that I was up for 16 days because I remember it was, you know, I remember <clears> the day <throat> to day, you know what I mean? And what that looked like. Um, but there was, yeah, the paranoia was through the roof. And when I would visit my mom, it was, it was still there. It was evident. But uh, the other withdrawals that I would have were just not eating, you know, again, yeah. even after I'm trying to, if I'm not currently hitting it or whatever, it's still in my system. So it was suppressing my appetite. So not eating breakfast, not that my mom would make, not eating lunch my mom would make, not eating dinner, you know what I mean? Um, not wanting to go hang out with my family and friends and things like that, you know? It was, it wasn't, it wasn't like, you know, I'm sitting there shaking, scratching my arm like I'm a heroin addict. It was just, oh, you guys go do that. You know what I mean? I'm going to hang back. Yeah. And I would just sit there and smoke cigarettes because that was my, you know, fill-in fix, you right. know? Um, and after those 16 days, the the scariest part was, crashing I, th- I crashed for about eight days and i was pretty much non-responsive Holy fuck. um and that was i think that was also the moment that my dad started getting into the point of noticing something mm-hmm. i don't think he ever i don't think it ever crossed his mind that it was meth 
or something like that. You know what I mean? I think it was probably just I'm a teenager and I'm lazy and I'm probably smoking weed and yeah, that's understandable. Yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah, eight days and I I remember him you know telling me stories about you know trying to wake me up and I wouldn't wake up and it was just my body and my brain were done and they shut off. So, fuck man, <laughs> your sanity had to be pushed to the brink. Yeah. Um, like I said, I, I can't say it enough, man. I, I know something was covering me at that time and I wasn't, even, I wasn't a believer. I wasn't anything. It was just something was there going this. No, he's not ready to die yet. So then what turned it around? What was the final point? I don't just... know no. to this day. I think, I mean, yes, I do know. Um, when, when the supply left, mm-hmm. Randy, Becky, all these people at my mm-hmm. job that I was getting it from, even the the other guys in Stockton and you know all the different cities that I would travel to go get it everybody just started disappearing whether they got busted or Randy and uh, Becky got fired from the job and mm-hmm. um, you know they would go somewhere else and I never had contact with them again the only contact I had with them was through work right. so all of a sudden my supply was gone and I didn't know what to do hmm. I would resort to other things like you know getting some some Ritalin pills, crushing them up yeah. and sniffing those, trying to, you know, get myself that feeling. But, uh, yeah, I, I just couldn't get my hands on it anymore. I could not get my hands on it. Huh. And it just kind of faded. It's weird. I'd be damned. Yeah. I wish I had that, again, when I'm talking in Celebrate Recovery about my past, right? Yeah. That I wish I had a story that was like, oh, yeah, I, you know, spent – two months in rehab and you know sure. and I, I lost everything and had mm-hmm. to learn but I that that wasn't my addiction everyone's nah, story's I, different absolutely yeah, yeah that's the kind of the you know when people say a rock bottom is some people is not necessarily ever truly have one per se yeah. but that you know kind of that hand of presence you know those that are in 12-step programs be familiar you know uh, the you know god of a higher power as i see him and we say that in the just to identify God, yeah. um, then maybe that was the blessing. Maybe that was, like you said, that that was the power. But you've also mentioned a lot about your wife. You said to me, "My wife saved my life." What do you What do you mean? If the supply dried up, so there was there was times it? where um, supply dried up, but all of a sudden somebody would pop back into my life and be like, "Hey, I got some, I got some meth. Yeah. Let's go do it." Mm-hmm. All right, yeah, no hesitation. Let's do it. I've been itching for this for like you know a month. Let's go. <clears throat> and um, so there was a lot of those days, you know, when my supply direct, you know, my direct uh, supply would, would dry up, you know, these other friends would pop in and whether they're from college or wherever, and they'd have, you know, something with them and we'd go hit it. Right. Or an ex-girlfriend or something would come across and have something. I met my wife um, in October of 2003, four, three. <laughs> We won't tell her we are. Yeah, don't tell her. (laughs) No, we were, yeah, 2003. But uh, one of my buddies came to, or an ex-girlfriend came to town um, along with another friend. And and there's a whole backstory there too. But uh, we ended up getting high again. Um, I hit it. And then all of a sudden they're out. So all of a sudden my stash is gone. My supply is gone. No option. I'm done. Um, And then I I went to the hospital for uh, kidney stones. And I'm in the emergency room. I think it was 21, 22, something like that. Uh, maybe 22, 23, either way. Um, and one of my friends walks into the emergency room with her son who had fallen off a shopping cart and hit his head in the grocery store. And her friend, Bonnie, 
was with her. Hmm. So a week after I had, you know, had my last hit of meth, I met my wife as, as a now wife of 17 years. And, you know, we met and it was like, when I met her, everything inside of me that was, you know, wanting to find meth or Coke or any drugs, you know what I mean? It was gone. Yeah. Like it was like, I don't like she became my new drug. Right. And it was like, I want this girl more than I want that right now. Well, that's right. adorable. Yeah. Well, but the interesting Maybe thing, Maybe we too, will let her hear this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you tell tell her, and she is just a lovely, wonderful person. Um, Thank you. you. Hearing you talk about all this, though, in, in meeting Bonnie, you now found connectivity because the one thing that happened when your parents got divorced yep. was mom was gone, yep. so you lost that connectivity. Dad wasn't interested you're essentially a latchkey kid. Absolutely. I know what it's like because that's why for me, you know, people go, what well, you know, what was the thing that kind of messed you up? It was like, oh, girls, you know, and it wasn't because girls because it was like some crazy horn dog. It was like, oh, I got a connection and I got the, you know, um, so then it's there. Well, we and I was the type present. of guy that in all my girl relationships, they weren't short. They yeah. weren't one night stands. Like, I mean, I had a few of those too, but um Majority of them were like a year, two years, you were the four years, you know? Yeah, yeah, I was a long-term relationship guy. So when I saw Bonnie and uh, I remember our, you know, uh, I think I think a few days after I'd, I had seen her and met her in the hospital, I got a call from uh, another friend of mine and said, hey, we're all gonna go out to a strip club in San Francisco, do you wanna come along? And by the way, that girl Bonnie is gonna be there. Did you, you know, you met her. I'm like, oh yeah, all right, let's go. So next thing you know, I'm in a you know group of ten people, two cars, and we're driving to San Francisco, hit up centerfolds. And <laughs> Did you guys hit Been it there. off pretty well? Our first kiss was on the corner of uh, I forget the streets, but it was uh, we were it was on the corner outside of centerfolds in San Francisco. <laughs> it was our first kiss? Well, if the first kiss outside a strip club so, like, isn't the most romantic, so like, right? Well, you, you, you. you went in and looked <laughs> at was, some titties, and then it inspired <laughs> going to make. I think out. I, I think we even got a lap dance together. You know what I mean? <laughs> like she. What, the funny thing is, she went there with another guy. Oh, left with me. Okay, <laughs> so I've been in that. So, scenario. like I was saying, the first kiss outside of a strip club in San Francisco. If that ain't, if that's not a storybook ending. Anybody that's listening or watching, I'm telling you, the key to a long-lasting relationship is a first kiss outside of a strip club. All right, lap dances, <laughs> After lap dances, lap dances. Get, get titties in everybody's face. That's right, centerfold. That's right. Uh, pay us for this plug, man. Yeah, I tell you yeah. what, I'll I'll delete it out. I'll just take out the audio. <laughs> what go earth place? Yeah, but yeah, now 17 years, man. That's awesome. Yeah, married. We've been uh, yeah together for about 17 years. We'll be married. Uh, so I met her in October. We were married in July. Oh shit! Yeah, just so new, huh? Quick, yeah. I just uh, she had a she had a kid, uh, Isaiah, mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, I fell in love with him yeah. before I fell in love with Bonnie. Fell in love I with know this what little that's kid. Like. Yeah. Um, he just yeah, he completely grabbed my heart. So th- that's why I say Bonnie saved my life because after after meeting her and going down the and meeting her son, everything else became non-existent. Mm-hmm. It wasn't important anymore. Yeah. And then you guys do some amazing work now, not only with your your kids, but foster kids. And you, you know. yeah, no, and 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 you know, I think you were touching on it, or I touched on it earlier, where you know, yeah, Bonnie comes from a broken childhood too. You know, right. um, physical abuse, sexual abuse, mental abuse, broken family, all that, and uh, so all of a sudden, these two broken people, you know, meet mm-hmm. and fall in love. 
And uh, I think the first eight years of our relationship were just utter hell. Like it was, it was just, you know, I don't know. We had, we had great times for the first couple of years. And then mm-hmm. after that, it was like, I, you know, we couldn't stand to be around each other. We didn't hmm. talk. We didn't no intimacy, no nothing. Right. And it was because we're, we're both broken. Sure. You know, but at the same time, we both came from divorced families. Mm-hmm. And when we first met we were, and we got married, it was like, just so you know, we're not getting divorced because I don't want our kids, uh, Isaiah, who I ended up adopting mm-hmm. and Nevaeh, um, who we had just after we were married mm-hmm. in December. And uh, we just said, look, I'm, I don't believe in divorce. I think it does more harm than anything for our kids. And mm-hmm. I want my kids to grow up in a household together. And I don't give a shit if that's a household that's fighting every day, which we're not gonna do in front of the kids. But uh, that was our stance. So no matter how dark mm-hmm. it got, you know, um, physical altercations. I mean, never hit my wife, never hit a woman, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? But she hit me, you know, and there was mm-hmm. a lot of times where, you know, but that was from her past, you know, that sure. trauma and that sure. trying to escape type thing. And I'm sitting here wanting to talk it out, right? That was so, the model that was molded. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, there was a long period of our marriage where um, it just, just, it was, it was bad. It was bad, but we stuck it out. Yeah. And uh, we ended up moving up to Oregon as a family. And uh, my wife got involved with an organization called Royal Family Kids, which is an organization that takes foster kids to a camp for a week. And uh, she, she went to camp. At camp, she found God. She came back. Part of my, my youth was rebelling against religion. You sure. know, I, I hated it. Was it forced on you as a kid? It was. That's probably why. Yeah. Typically, if it's forced on you, then you separate yourself. Yeah, my mom really, you know, she met a guy after my parents were divorced that was Mormon, and she wanted me to go down that route. So I, you know, I ended up getting baptized Mormon and all that. I never really practiced. It was more just to get the missionaries to stay away from our house. Because <laughs> once you got baptized, they didn't visit you anymore. Yeah. Um, so Bonnie goes to this camp. She comes back and she, she found God. And here I'm going like, well, don't be talking to my kids about that. You know, don't be forcing my kids into, you know, sure. this or that or whatever. And there was probably a couple of weeks where she didn't force the kids into it. And then all of a sudden the kids wanted to go to church with her. Sure. So I became that dad who's just sitting at home while my family's going to Sunday church. I'm like, okay, this is great. I feel worthless, you know? And I and they'd have like this dinner after camp and I'd go to this dinner because I'd have to bring the kids to see their mom. Sure. They haven't seen her in a week, right? And all these people are coming to me. Thanks so much for letting your wife come to camp. Letting your wife come to camp. And I'm like, letting her? I'm not a... I'm not, I don't beat my wife. You know what I mean? I'm yeah. not like, woman, you know? <laughs> Damn it, woman, get yeah, back in the exactly. cage. You know? So it was kind of, and then all of a sudden in my mind, I'm going, wow, I, I must look like an asshole. You know what I mean? Like, I don't go to church with my family. My family goes, my kids go, my wife goes, you know what I mean? It's like, I'm just the guy that stays home and gives her permission to do these things, right? Mm-hmm. So I decided one day, I said, you know what? All right, I'll, I'm going to go to church with you guys today. Packed up Sunday morning, go to church. And uh, I found myself sitting in the, the pew while they're playing worship music. And all of a sudden, it was like tears rolling down. I'm crying. Hmm. I'm just like, I don't know what's going on right now, but something's happening. Like, this is scary, you know? Thinking about my past, thinking about everything I've been through, and it's all coming to a head. I'm going, what is this, you know? And, uh, yeah, I just I, I started going down this path of uh, attending church with them. Mm-hmm. You know, and then I remember the pastor's wife uh, at the time was the worship leader 
And Bonnie had posted some pictures of me playing drums and singing and playing guitar. And she invited me up there one day for a Father's Day where all the dads, quote unquote, were going to be on stage and doing this thing. And I said, all right, yeah, I'll go ahead and do it. That's fine. Well, it was just me. <laughs> it was just me and the rest of the worship team <laughs> and no <laughs> other dads. And she puts me front and center singing a song. And uh, so I started, you know, that was my beginning of, you know, worshiping God and attending church and being a part of that. And quickly after that, I got involved with Royal Family Kids. I started going, I became a counselor and I fell in love with helping these kids. Mm. You know, I fell in love with going to this camp and seeing the smiling faces and then, you know, knowing the backstory of these kids and going, wow, these guys came from broken homes, you know, worse than mine. I'm going to give these kids the week of their life. And, uh, you know, years went by and it was like, all right, we felt like God was telling us to do more. So my wife and I went out and did uh, the foster care training just as a, hey, if, if we're called to do this and we feel like there's a need for it, at least we're trained and we're licensed, we're ready to go. I think we finished training after six weeks and I think within a week or two we had our first set of uh, of brothers that came oh, into our house did. for a 24-hour period and uh, and my wife used to come back from camp going I want to adopt this kid I want to adopt this kid I want to bring them all home and I'm yeah. like slow down <laughs> um, so yeah we, we started we started foster care and uh, you know one kid after another it was just like all right this is what we're meant to do yeah. The connection with my past though is that you know these parents lost their kids because of addiction alcohol neglect abuse whatever and it all aligned with our past yeah. like my addiction with drugs bonnie's you know my wife's uh abusive past and all that stuff it was like we're in a we're in a mode to not only help these kids but we're kind of in a position to help these parents yeah all right i see where i see where things are leading me you know what i mean i see what i'm what i'm called to do and mm -hmm. So we just, we continued forward and, you know, here we are, I think it's almost, almost six years of doing it. We've had over 27 kids in our home. Right now we have two little ones. So it's badass. Yeah. And through that, we got to uh, adopt another son. That's so our, right. Our, our son Dominic is six now. So he was a foster child. We had him for about four years and um, unfortunately his mom just couldn't get it together and, oh, and come shit. back as much as we tried. And, uh. And we fell in love with that kid. So we finalized the adoption after three years of processing the adoption. It was crazy. A roller coaster of everything. Sure. And uh, yeah, now he's ours. So. That's awesome. And for those that aren't watching on YouTube, he's got a huge smile on his face. Because we've <laughs> talked and it's like, man, that is an undertaking and a half. But the cool thing about what you just said there and anyone that's maybe like, you know, is a 12-step step program for me if they're going towards it is you talked about your spiritual awakening. Mm-hmm and service mm -hmm. uh, all right there and it's and it's like a thing that if people that i've talked to i know mikey as well is it a 12 step may not be the answer like for carlos he did them but he couldn't you know exactly. carlos Vieira, we're talking about author knocking yep. doors down but for him he had to have something go go beyond the group whereas you and i we're the group people yep. we like it yep. we like that connectivity yep. so i didn't like that either you know yep. i didn't like the group thing yeah so for everybody it may not be but here's what what I'm taking away from that is that those things do occur for you one way or the other. 100%. And still to this day, I'm involved in Celebrate Recovery and I, I go and I have a lot of great friends that are, you know, some of the worst addicts you've ever met in your All life, right. but uh, they're just amazing people. And yeah. uh, it's a great program and I'm, I'm still involved with it and I always will be. So, 
And we yeah. tend to be, uh, you know, and I say we, us addicts, the least judgmental people because it's like we've pulled so much shit. It's like we can't, we can't say a damn thing to anyone about anything. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mikey. Jason. Is it that time? Believe so. Uh-oh. Rapid I questions. I didn't prepare for this. These are just random questions. You don't have to answer them randomly, but they're all about fun shits and giggles for those <laughs> over the pond. Mikey. You handsome son of a gun, you're up first. Jason Van Dusen. <laughs> if they were to make a movie about you, who would you cast to play you? Uh, I, you know what? I'm going to say Mark Wahlberg. Oh. All right. Just because, you know, in my, in my mirror, I feel like I look like him. <laughs> I personally think you're a lot better looking than Mark well, Wahlberg. Well, thank you. But, you know. I know everybody on YouTube is going to be laughing after this one, but... Uh, <laughs> No, I, I think Walt, I'm a huge fan of his. I love what he does. Yeah. And he did that movie, uh, Instant Family, mm-hmm. about foster care and all that. That's so, right. Um, I think it'd be a good fit. Yeah. Uh, if you were on a deserted island and you had one movie and one album, what would they be? Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> yeah, you That need is to. my all-time favorite movie. Right. Um, that would be the laughing. Yeah, that would be the humor side of it. Yeah. I'm stuck on an island. I need something to laugh at. I need to so laugh. Dumb and Dumber. Uh, huge fan of Jim Carrey and Jeff Bridges. And uh, album. And I think it's a toss-up. I mean... Because you talked a lot about making music and stuff. So. Yeah, no. I, and I'm, I, I still, to this day, I love writing music and stuff. But uh, I think... Metallica's Black Album mm. might be uh, my number one, or Avenged Sevenfold Nightmare Album. Oh. Yeah. That's I'm not a, the first time we've gotten those, huh? Or at least Avenged Sevenfold. Dumb Someone and Dumber, I believe. Yeah. Black Album is a masterpiece. It and is. And Nightmare is, It too. is. Yeah. So. Okay. If you can have dinner with anybody in the entire world, living or not, who would it be? That's you know it's funny I've I've heard you guys ans- ask these questions mm-hmm. and I've never thought about it like who would I answer but uh I think uh <clears throat> not because of my own fanaticism but my dad was a huge fan of John Wayne mm-hmm. all right I think that wrong. guy would be a I think that guy would be a cool guy just to sit down and have a have a, a meal with I don't John know. Wayne John Wayne there's something about him that it seems he would shoot you straight right? yeah. Yeah, it's it's got that. I mean, even Clint Eastwood would be my second choice. You know what I mean? It's got that vibe. You know? God damn it, Van Dusen! I was gonna say Hugh impersonation. (laughs) Um, Gotta do it. (laughs) Yeah, no, Clint Eastwood would be dope. I would like to sit down with Clint Eastwood as well. That'd be cool. Any pet peeves? Um, Other than when Mikey calls you. I love it when Mike. I was going to say, I don't know okay, what you're talking about. Okay, other than when I call there you. There we go. <laughs> I love it when you call me too, buddy. <laughs> oh, all right. Um, pet peeves, um, not 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 much. I think, uh, I don't know, people, you know, driving slow in the fast lane, you know what I mean, type uh, thing. That's, uh, gosh, I, that, I think people. everybody, you know what I mean, has Except that. for those that drive slow in the yeah, fast lane. Yeah, except for the ones that drive slow in the fast yeah. lane. But yeah, that'd be, I guess that'd be a pet peeve of mine. I so, envy right. people who don't have that many pet peeves because I feel like I have so fucking many of them. Like someone will do something and I'm just like, oh. you know, after this interview's done, I'm going to walk back and be like, oh, when man, you're driving home, cr- you're oh, going to think about it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, that's what it was. Right. Yeah. No, I think it's just people doing stupid things in, in the wrong situations. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, and driving slow in the fast lane is one of those big ones for me. So yeah. it is fucking annoying. Or Favorite? merge at the last minute. Oh, or merge slowly. 
that they get on the freeway where it's speed limit 65 and they yeah. do 35. Happened this morning, son yeah. of a bitch. I can a guarantee lot of minor that driving. Exactly. I was going to say yeah. I can guarantee that all my pet peeves are from are just driving. <laughs> so yeah. All right. What Favorite cuss word. Ooh. I don't know if I have a favorite. I don't know if I have a favorite. I think I think I mean for me, you're an equal opportunity. I'm an equal opportunity user. guy. Yeah, I try and I try and sprinkle them as much as I can in every sentence in the right environment. Right. Sure. <laughs> not not when you're on a work call and your, your Which coworker one do you tend- has his kids in the car on speakerphone and you ask him if he wants to go to banana hammock party. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. <laughs> yeah. my, kid, my kids got a kick out of that. Dad, what's a True, banana hammock? <laughs> True story, people on YouTube. He had his kids in the car and I'm busting his balls. Uh, anyways, my question, your question. Your turn. Oh, uh, all right. Because he gives me so much shit about my answer. Superpower. If you could have any one superpower, what would it be? Just just before you answer, just think about it, okay? But don't think comic booky. Oh, I've already had this conversation with my kids. Okay. What is it? Mine's uh, reading minds. Why? Because I want to know what someone's thinking so I can appropriately approach them or you know, be like, have hey. something like I know what's going to happen. <laughs> like I can sit across the room and be like, oh, what all right. I, what am I thinking? I'm going right to go have now. a conversation. I know exactly how to jump into that. Or know? walk in. Hey, oh, fuck you, dude. <laughs> <laughs> that would kind of mess me up. That's one I wouldn't want because think about the... We all have dark stuff that goes on in our brain to yeah. different levels. It would probably really mess me up to see like, you know, my kids are at this the stage where they're trying to figure out self-esteem and working on it. And it would probably really scare me and break my heart if I knew exactly what they were thinking at some points because. So if I was able to select and like turn, you know what I mean? If yeah, I was able like to like switch, I'm going to point at you and all of a sudden your mind turns on. And then if I hear something I don't like turn it oh, off gotcha. and then I'm going to point you know yeah. what I mean if rather I can do than that hear everyone's rather than once, like what women yeah. want you know what I mean or whatever right, exactly. Mel Gibson right yeah. I don't know that's too much I don't right. want that I want to be able to selectively look at somebody and say alright what are they thinking boom yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> gotcha. I got you I got you Mikey one more we'll wrap this up one more okay what are some of your greatest achievements yeah what are some of my greatest or your greatest achievements, achievements. no Greatest achievements. It's my question. He wants you always plural, fucking sorry. do this. <laughs> Greatest I'm gonna go over here. <laughs> oh boy. My my family yeah. would be my number one. Of course, yeah. Absolutely. Um super proud of my kids and who they are and yeah, couldn't be that's that's my ultimate greatest achievement. But uh I think uh my my ability to connect with people, yeah, you know, in conversation, I'm, I'm pretty proud of that. You, Do you know, think I don't, your third I don't one would be like when we got to work together. Would that be um, that's like tie number one. Just saying. <laughs> um, no, and you know, actually, no, fifty one fifty in this lifestyle in this company, and uh, you know, and you guys, and that's 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 a big part of my life, and I love it. So, mm. but um, yeah, the ability to connect with people, you know what I mean, no matter status, background, whatever it is. Yeah. I, I think that's a that's a that's what I'm pretty proud of. So yeah. as you should be. Yeah. As you All right, be. you are the guest. You leave us with the final words of inspiration. I just uh, I just urge everybody to uh, to live the fifty one fifty lifestyle. Let's live the madness. That's uh, don't let anything stop you. Don't let anything hold you down. Just push through. There's nothing we can't overcome. There's nothing we can't get through or get beyond. And yeah, man, just. 
don't let things drag you down and laugh yeah laugh yeah. just laugh <laughs> it's the key to everything damn <laughs> like, it like laugh. this yes and on that note we're done thank you Mr. Van Dusen thank you Jason Van Dusen, love that guy. What a sweet fella. Yeah, it's it, it really is so interesting the longer I'm in recovery and probably more you with, with focusing a lot more on your mental health, which I appreciate because, you know, you help me so much. People mm-hmm. don't know I was losing my shit before you started working with well, me I here. try, man, I try. And uh, But it's, it's interesting how there's people that we can have these relationships uh, with long-term, you know, uh, good friendships, whatever it may be, and we don't know that they've struggled with these things till they really just uh, decide to open up. And that's been one of the most rewarding parts of doing this podcast with I you. I was going to say, that's why I love doing this is because we're, you know, shedding light on it. If we were doing something else, I would have still to this day had no idea that he struggles with, you know, anxiety or any kind of other mental health issues or known that he was an addict. You know, yeah. it's just and this kind of just brings light on something that more people than you think suffer from. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, again, that's the blessing that uh, Carlos Vieira, of course, author of the Knocking Doors Down book, available. You can click the link in the podcast description there telling his story of how he fell into cocaine addiction and subsequently got out of that deep, dark place, uh, begun knocking doors down, started the 5150 brand, as well as the Carlos Vieira Foundation giving back. But uh, this opportunity has afforded us to be able to do that and, and gain a greater understanding in, in even as someone in recovery. And I know you, you know, we both struggle with anxiety, maybe a little more for you, but me with depression, that uh, us getting more into it has completely changed my perception even more as I become more educated. So uh, it's just an amazing opportunity to, uh, to share these stories with you folks. Yeah, it definitely uh, helps talking about it. Like I said before, and I'll say it probably another million times, but bringing light to it, it, it makes you realize you're not unique. There's a lot of people that have anxiety, and uh, talking about it helps getting it off your chest rather than keeping stuff bottled up. Absolutely, and know that there is always help. Of course, you can go to our website, which is in the podcast description. We've got a lot of uh, information there for services. If it's addiction, if it's mental health, you're struggling, please reach out and know that help is there. It does exist. And again, thank you guys for listening. Uh, If you're on the Apple Podcast app, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. If you're on the iHeart app, be it uh, Spotify, Google Podcast, I mean, we are everywhere you get podcasts. And of course, our YouTube channel, you can also see full-length videos of the interviews there. Uh, Anything else I'm forgetting, Mikey? No, I'm going home. On that note, keep knocking doors down. Strengthening communities, providing resources, building awareness, empowering youth in need to overcome adversity and achieve success. This is what the Carlos Vieira Foundation is all about. Through our campaigns, the race for autism, race to end the stigma, and race to be drug free, we're able to help so many in need. Our goal is to provide support to families and children and give these families opportunities that might not normally arise. Learn more and find out how you can get involved. Visit Carlos Vieira Foundation.org today. This podcast contains the views and opinions 
opinions of the Knocking Doors Down hosts and their guests to the show. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. And because each person is sharing their unique perspective, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Views and opinions expressed in the podcast and website are our own and do not represent that of our places of work. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors. Privacy is of the utmost importance to us. For those wishing anonymity, people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect confidentiality at the request of certain guests. This website or podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast or website. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with their content establish a doctor-patient relationship. If you find any errors in any of the content of this podcast or blogs, please send a message through the contact page. This podcast is owned by KDD Media Company.